0: Thank you, choir, and thank you, Aaron, for adding the flute to that. And also, I want to introduce you to a guest musician we have today. Jonathan Kraft is over on the side, over there. <laughs> Jonathan is uh, filling in for Mark Brown this Sunday, who is in Oregon at the debut of a new Christmas musical he has co-written, and so that is where he is celebrating Christmas today. And Jonathan actually has invited me to be on Monday's Queer Voices with him to talk about Christmas and the season and how the emotions can affect you during that time. So thank you, Jonathan, and we're glad you're here today. And thank you, Aaron and the choir and all of you. We appreciate it. We appreciate it. So, I don't know if you are like many people and think that you're headed for the perfect Christmas or not. Perfect? Are you you ready? I mean, I know some of you pay a lot of attention to those wrapping papers and those bows, right? Some of you make sure you've got the right color sweaters and everything. Everything's just the socks match the shirt, match the shoes, match the purse, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, it's just perfect, right? Um, It can get us in trouble this need for perfection, but it's very human for us to want to find that. And particularly at this time of the year when we put so much weight on what it means to us to be loved by God and to be uh, a part of these holidays in this way. And some of us go home and we know we're not expecting that to be too perfect. So we do what we can. We do what we can to maybe try and lift it to a place where, for us, it is passable. At least if someone looks on the outside at what we're doing for Christmas, it might look perfect, right? Even if underneath, we're pedaling as fast as we can. Oh, goodness, we put so much energy on this, And, and I want to tell you that my mom was not immune from this phenomenon. My mother liked perfect Christmases. You know, they fulfilled in her some vision and dream that she had of what life was really supposed to be like because her life was really not like that at all. It was not like that at all. And I'll start in that story by telling you another story about the streetwalker and the judge. Have you heard it? The streetwalker and the judge. So this streetwalker lived in East Texas and she had a very profitable business. Pretty popular. Profitable business, made a good living. And there was this judge that lived in Louisiana just across the state line, and the judge was one of the Streetwalkers' best customers. This judge also ran moonshine at the time. So he was the kind of judge that ran moonshine and visited Streetwalkers. That's important to the story. So, as time went on, and this judge became a more regular uh, customer, the streetwalker actually was found to be with child. Imagine that. Found to be with child. And and so doing, since the judge had been such a regular client, it was determined that the judge was the father of the child, of the streetwalker. But then, because the judge was already married, you see, we're perfection, okay. <laughs> He was not going to marry the streetwalker. But the judge said that I will take care of the child. So as time came and time passed, then the child was born, and then the child was brought into the judge's family's home, and the judge gave the child the judge's name uh, and raised that child as his own. Though sometimes the child spent a lot of time in Texas away from this part of the family just because that's the way things were. Well, I tell you that story because that streetwalker was my great-great-grandmother. Or maybe just one great. Um, because that child was my grandmother. And that child lived back and forth between Louisiana and East Texas, and uh, this story kind of carried with her through her life of how she was born uh, it, in, in, in her home life. She was not a streetwalker. <laughs> but she had between seven and ten husbands, we're not quite sure. <laughs> My grandmother was one of those women like Elizabeth Taylor at that time that liked to legitimize all her short-term relationships with marriage. <laughs> and so, And even when my grandmother died, the man she was living with at that time was not her husband, but had been her husband at one time, and they still live together. (laughs) You know, so um, my streetwalker, great-grandma, and my grandma. You know, so into this world, my mother is born. Into this world, my mother is born. And she has an older brother and a younger sister, and so she is the middle child that tries to hold things together and and make sure everything's okay in that family. And even when grandma's in between husband number five, six, or seven at the bar trying to find another one, she might be out in the car with the kids making sure that everything's okay. The three of them, you know, just trying not to get towed off the parking lot while grandma's drinking. But that was the life that my mom was born into and how she was raised. And so she decided she was going to be different when she grew up. She decided she was going to do it different. So she she did what she was taught to do, and she said she was not going to have sex until she got married. Have you all heard that rule? Some of us had to wait a long time to get married. Walter and I did not wait. Walter and I did not wait. But because that's what she had been told in that time period, she wanted to follow that rule because she knew if she followed the rule, things would be okay. And so there was this guy that was hot and heavy for her, and she refused to have sex with him. So he got married to her just so he could have sex. And that lasted about 18 months because she was the only one that had said no to him, so she became a challenge. And so in that challenge, she decided, well, then I'm going to get married so I can have her. Now well, in that short 18-month period of time, we had, she had two children, me and my sister, and then the divorce happened. And her life was broken in a way, but she still had hope, and she still went on in her life to look for what would create the family that she envisioned, that she had hoped for. And so about the time I was eight or nine, she decided that we needed a daddy in our life. You know, some people get married for that. They needed a daddy in their life. The way this boy's acting, he needs a man. (laughs) I think that was in there somewhere. (laughs) So she got married to this guy that was abusive. But she married out of fear that she needed to get married because she was supposed to get married, and it was time for her to get married. And that lasted a year. And we were so thankful when it ended. And at that point in time, you know, you think you might give up. But she didn't give up. And it was about a year later that she got married to the man who's still my father to this day. Who adopted me, who gave me his name, and who stood with Walter and I, his father and my father, when we got married as our best men. And so... This story does have a purpose. It does have a purpose. And mom's dream for that perfect family, you know, she was so caught in the rules and what was right that she even took that marriage certificate and she put it on the wall in their bedroom above their king-size bed because that way you knew what was going on in that bed was legal. (laughs) This is what I come from. So she wanted that family to be whole, that blended family. And my my dad and his daughter mom and my sister and I, we were blending together in this family. And and early on, that was not very easy because the first Christmas, you know, you have different family rules about what you do for Christmas, how you decorate that tree, what's the right way, what's the wrong way, how to do it perfectly, you know. And so there were these rules about this perfect Christmas thing that we were supposed to live into even though we were still just getting to know each other. And we were in the first house we ever lived in. It was an apartment. We could paint our walls. One of my sisters had lavender. The other sister had pink. But we could paint our walls for the first time. So they're married almost a year. First house. First Christmas we get into. And it needs to be perfect. Because you know the hopes and the fears of all the years matter this night. It's got to be perfect. And so we go and get a Christmas tree and start to put it up, and my sister and I had never seen a live Christmas tree before. That was something newfangled, we thought. we only used to the metal Christmas trees. And so we're trying to work our way around this live Christmas tree, and it's up to the kids to to decorate it. And as we get around, what started happening is, because we're used to those metal limbs that are kind of stiff, we'd put the ornament on these bendy limbs, (laughs) and it would fall to the floor and smash. And so we ended up with a lot of broken ornaments. But since mom wanted a perfect Christmas, uh, Terry Elizabeth and I were doing a real good job of going, look, get it out of the way. Don't let her see. Don't let mom see, you know? And I don't think she would have flown into a tirade, but we were just wanting to make it better for her. We were wanting it to make it be what the picture was she had in her head. And so by the end, we had broken at least a dozen ornaments and swept them all in the corner. We didn't realize that Dad had a camera on back in the hallway. (laughs) And so there's video of all of us going, taking the ornaments and pushing them away. (laughs) And I want to tell you, that may not have been a perfect Christmas, but in that moment in time of two sisters and a new brother, um, hiding broken Christmas ornaments, we became brothers and sisters. We started a new story of a new family of what it means to celebrate Christmas. And isn't it like that when we go for perfection sometimes? The grace happens right there in the broken ornaments. It happens in those surprising places in the cracks where love gets in when we've tried so hard to cement it up that nothing can find a way in or out. But God's grace still can find a way in to what we think is our perfection through those broken ornaments. And I tell you that story today to tell you that is the story that we hear in Matthew's Gospel today. That's the story we hear about Joseph and Joseph's family and Joseph's dream. And, and you might say, what is he talking about? Well, you know, Matthew does this interesting thing telling us Joseph's lineage. And if you look at his lineage right before this part of the passage, the genealogy, you recognize that there's five women in that story which is not all that usual for scripture. You know, and these five women. You notice as you look at their stories and what happened. His family had streetwalkers and people who pretended to be streetwalkers. His family had rapists. His family had people who were raped. Joseph's family had Tamar, who pretended to be a streetwalker so she could get pregnant by her father-in-law and have a baby in the family name. Then they had Rahab, another streetwalker who protected the whole army in ways that saved lives. So let's not be mean to our street walkers, they've been a part of our family, you know. And then there's Ruth, who was not of the right blood or skin color, and she's a part of the family there. She actually tackles one of those people on the harvest floor and finds a way into the family. You know, it keeps going on down through these years. And so Joseph's family has all of these kinds of people in the lineage. And Matthew's telling it for a purpose. Telling us because each and every time one of those women was included in the genealogy, Israel's life was saved. The country's life was transformed. The people somehow were saved each time one of those events happened. Right when the ornament looked broken was when God entered in and said, Look, we're doing a new thing. Look, we're doing a new thing. And so Matthew's story is recounting all of these incidences. And when they get to Joseph, Joseph hardly even rates. I don't know if you've ever read the genealogy, but at the end of it, it says, Joseph, but it says, husband of Mary. Like, you have to know who Joseph is, because Joseph is the husband of Mary. No other man in Gospels talked about that way except for Joseph. Husband of Mary. He got to be Mr. Mom. You know, Joseph husband of Mary. So today we talk about Joseph and what he offered and what he brought. He brought this family line that was all mixed up and muddled, but it was enough. He brought into this situation what he understood to be righteousness. The scripture is very clear that Joseph was a righteous man, and righteousness meant something. Righteousness meant you separated yourself from those things that weren't righteous, And so, when Mary was found to be pregnant, Joseph, as a righteous person, had two choices. The worst of which was to kill her, get your friends together and go stone her. You know, the best was to divorce her and humiliate her. This is what the righteous people did. This is what was required or you wouldn't be separate enough and you would not stay righteous. And that's how Joseph is defined in the scripture. So part of what Joseph decides to do is to not make a big deal of it and to allow Mary to go her own way separately. To divorce her quietly. And there's an interesting word in the scripture that's used at that time that has multiple definitions. And I want you to look at what some of those definitions are of apoluo, and that's said in Texan, apoluo Hebrew, okay, deloosening or the letting one go, setting one free. It also means divorce. It means releasing someone from an obligation. And at its deepest, deepest sense, this word that's used in the Gospel of Matthew means to forgive. means to forgive. So what it says is Joseph is, is wondering about whether or not he should release Mary from the obligation if he should forgive Mary There's a lot of context in that sentence of what is Joseph considering as he goes to sleep that night. As he gets set to dream a little dream about what the future holds. Joseph is wondering all these things about what's going on with Mary. He knows what righteousness demands. But something in his heart is tugging at him in different ways and he goes to bed. Have you ever gone to bed not knowing what to decide? And woken up in the morning with a little bit clearer path. This is one of those kind of nights for Joseph. You see, he doesn't get a full-blown angel like Mary did. Or like Zechariah did the last two Sundays. He does get Gabriel, the same one, but only in a dream. Dreams are fuzzy. You don't know if it's indigestion or not. (laughs) Dreams are fuzzy things. So here's Joseph going to bed all in a conundrum and he's gonna have a little dream. In the dream, Gabriel comes to him and says, Joseph, oh, it's okay. You know, you might be feeling the right thing in your heart. You can go ahead and marry her. You can go ahead and marry her. And not only will you marry her, it's okay, you need to name the child and name the child Joseph. And that may not mean, not Joseph, okay? And so how that's important in that time and place is that when you named a child, that was claiming the child as your own. So not only go marry Mary, but name the child, claim the child as your own. So in this place, Joseph goes to sleep restless and dreams a little dream of an angel that tells him to do these things and Joseph gets up and does it. I was surprised when I Googled this verse and looked for images that there's actually pictures of Joseph and Mary getting married in religious art and literature and history. Had y'all seen those before? I never knew such a thing existed. But I went and I looked and here are these histories and these stories of Joseph and Mary getting married. We just kind of rush over that to the baby. But the sign of getting married and the sign of naming the child, claiming it as its own. To this person, Joseph, who sort of disappears, who has a fuzzy dream, who makes sure the new family is safe by carting them off to Egypt when people are trying to kill him who maybe even apprentices Jesus in the trade of carpentry so that he can get by in the world, might discover that this kid's all thumbs and needs to go into another profession, you know, that woodworking might not be the very thing for him. So this Joseph that we don't hear about anymore extends grace and forgiveness and claims as his own a child, a child that we know saves us. So, in our lives, in our quest, sometimes for perfection, sometimes for the way things ought to be, the righteousness of the way things should be, we need to wait and long for those moments wherein the broken ornaments, God enters in and says, I'm about to do something new, and I'm about to do it right here and right now, and it's not going to look like what you expect, it's not tightly wound and wrapped as that beautiful package is, it's a little bit messy. That's a little bit broken. And I wonder today if we allow that into our life and we're able to dream a little dream ourselves, what the angels may sing to us, what the angel may ask us to do. I wonder if we're willing to listen to the dream. I wonder if we are through with trying to save ourselves through enough drink or alcohol or sex or whatever it is that numbs out the rest of life, even hard work beyond 80 hours a week, whatever it is we do to not pay attention to what our heart longs for. You know, because this Christmas time comes and Joseph takes these actions and it's for our salvation. And I wonder today, when the angel speaks to you or sings to you, Have you finished saving yourself yet? Maybe you're ready. Maybe you're ready to dream a little dream with me, and it might end up in that place of forgiveness where all things can be made new. Amen.